Welcome to this bonus edition of the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis, the author of the Investment Trust Handbook. Continuing on from Saturday's regular edition, Jonathan spoke to Stephen Tredgett, a partner at Oakley Capital, the firm which manages the funds into which OCI invests as the investment trust. Stephen, you put out some results today. We're talking on Thursday. Why don't you quickly summarise though? I mean, even you know those who are a little bit sceptical about a private equity trust, like me, have to say they were pretty good. Jonathan, thank you for having me on. And yes, the interim results for OCI were released this morning. And to be frank, most of the details were known. The key information had been released at the, the trading update in July that the NAV per share had risen to 630 pence. That was a 17% return over that six-month period, a pretty you know, kind of market-beating return amongst the other you know, kind of listed private equity vehicles. And was largely down to the financial performance of the portfolio companies. When I talk of those, as now there was 24 of them at the half year. They are typically digitally disruptive companies, or at least over 70% of them are. They're being backed by some kind of tailwind of a significant mega trend that is countercyclical, like businesses shift to the cloud online adoption of consumer solutions or the continuing drawing demand for higher quality education. So these are the come what may drivers of the performance that hopefully endure regardless of the backdrop. And that is what drove the earnings growth of the companies. So the average EBITDA growth in the period for those 24 companies was an organic EBITDA growth of 18%. That was the significant driver of 76% of the growth of the portfolio companies. The remaining 28% was a result of multiple expansion. But all of that, or 93% of that, was thanks to three exits that we announced in the period and the multiple uplift that was involved as a result of that. If you strip those out, the growth here is not thanks to, you know, kind of speculative assumptions around the multiples of the portfolio, but more around the financial performance of those companies. Okay, so very solid performance in NAV terms. But of course, the issue we will come back onto, which is to talk about the discount on the shares as the investment trust trades, which it remains very wide at around 35% or so, something like that. I think that's right. Now, before we get on to that, I should mention, I mean, Oakley Capital Investments was listed in 2007 and immediately ran into the global financial crisis, which was a very tough period for a lot of private equity trusts. And since then, on my calculations, I mean, the share price has gone from £1 to £4, which is about just on 10% per annum. But if the discount had been eliminated, uh, it would be more like 13% compound annualized rate of return, which is obviously quite impressive. But your actual more recent performance has been better than that uh, in NAV terms. And remind us what your target is in terms of uh, the kind of returns you're hoping and expecting to generate from your portfolio. We haven't announced a specific target, but we say that the very least we anticipate, you know, kind of exceeding the FTSE all share. I mean, the whole point of being as asset class is growth that you want to see, you know, some impressive growth coming through. That said, the average compound growth over the last five years was a 23% compounding NAV return. And we would like to believe that, you know, that's the kind of sustainable level of growth that we have achieved and can continue to achieve. To put in perspective, when we raised the fund in 2007, there was quite a few fallow years in that it kind of drags down the kind of average rate of return because, of course, we had a lot of cash and actually 
perversely, nothing to invest it in because no deals took place for, for quite a number of years. Banks kept zombie companies alive, no transactions took place. And so we actually found it quite hard to deploy capital. Now, of course, you've got a fully deployed, mature portfolio and an evolved strategy. So that we've got much more control over the returns than we did back in the day. Yes, and I think it's fair to say, even sceptics like me have to acknowledge this fact that, I mean, you have done better than most of the peer group over five years, not quite so uh, well over 10 years, but over five years, you're certainly uh, up near the top of the pack. And that's commendable. In fact, you're actually doing better while others are uh, perhaps are faltering a little bit in terms of NAV terms. So credit where that's due. You don't run a concentrated portfolio, but you're concentrated around a, a specific number of sectors where you have, I think, demonstrated that you have you know, extensive experience and indeed very close knowledge of the market. And that is, uh, I guess you'd say, one of your competitive strengths, the fact that you are often the first investor in many of the companies in which you are investing because of your network that you build up over time. And that, that is uh, essentially one of the core competitive advantages you have that's helped to deliver this uh, NAV return in the last five years, at least. But you do focus on the European market. It's not the UK, it's not US, it's the European market. Uh, I'm right about that. You're quite correct, Jonathan, in all the points you've made there. I mean, we're very much focused on technology, consumer or consumer digital and education. And the overriding theme across all those sectors is that a good slug of the businesses deploy their products and services digitally, and a good three quarters of them enjoy kind of recurring subscription type revenues, which as you can imagine is kind of important in current times of uncertainty. Our expertise and our kind of office footprint and our network, and particularly entrepreneur network, is very much based around Western and Southern Europe. So it tends to reflect where you, you know you'd expect us to continue to invest going forward. Actually, yeah, there's an interesting point I mean you make around, yes, you know, you talked about us being focused in terms of our sectors and our strategy which I think is helpful and is helpful to investors. You know, you've got a very clear lead on kind of what type of companies we invest in and what we have invested in. There is also an advantage by just by virtue of the fact that this is quite a focused portfolio. I mean, 26 companies is probably as focused you're going to get within listed PE. That focus does represent a risk, clearly. And where a fund of fund will provide exposure to hundreds, not thousands of companies, it's going to give you a more potentially defensive performance. The upside for us of being focused is that one, we're only trying to make you know three and four investments a year. Secondly, if you get our performance, and when I say our performance, like even better than the average 20% you know, kind of EBITDA growth, then it can have a real meaningful impact on the OCI performance. And I refer in this case to kind of IU Group, which is an investment we made in 2018, which is Germany's largest and fastest growing university. It's an online university. It's looking to provide accessible and affordable education to students around the world. Its student numbers have accelerated incredibly over the period we've owned it. They're now up to 100,000 students from just over 15,000 when we bought them in 2018. You know, it's reported EBITDA growth is growing at at least 70%. Your look through exposure to it as an OCI shell is 200 million pounds. And you know, it can have a real positive impact on OCI's performance as it continues to perform. And it's one of our best performing companies. So you can decide if that's a, a risk that you can have that impact. I personally think it's one of the clear reasons why we've maybe outperformed the more broader based listed PE peer group over the last six months. 
Yes, well, let's quickly talk about that period. As is well known, the uh, private equity valuations on the whole tend to come out with a lag. And so if you compare them to what's happening in the listed markets, to the extent that's valid, you would expect that if we have a weak market like we've had in the first half of the year, particularly uh, in the US and uh, more latterly in Europe as well, uh, you would expect that uh, you would see a share price impact. And I think you made the point today that there's a lot of cash sloshing around in private equity at the moment, spare cash, but fundraising has got a lot slower this year because of market conditions. And at the same time, valuations on the deals that are being realized have come down. I mean, you've had a tailwind for the last 10 years. I think looking at your notes from over 10 years, the median enterprise value to EBITDA buyout multiple, in other words, that's really a equivalent, if you like, to a PE ratio, then obviously not identical. That has gone up from 10 to 14 times, which is obviously a huge tailwind for the sector. But this year, so far, it's only averaging 11 times. So in other words, the valuations have fallen. So it's not a surprise, you would think, therefore, that the private sector has been seeing either widening discounts or discounts that uh, have not uh, narrowed as many private equity trusts would like. Mm. Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, there's clearly a lag. I mean, actually, it's one of the benefits that you don't constantly in every day mark to market your private investments. I mean, that lack of pressure of live pricing is one of the real positives of private ownership, you know, that you can get about worrying about the business, not about worrying about the share price. But you're absolutely right. It's not live priced. There is a big fear when the market falls off that the values of private equity portfolios will also be falling off in the meantime. I mean, bringing that up to date, we've released a NAV here today, or at least the interim results of a pretty live NAV. I mean, that is a full revaluation of the portfolio as at the end of June. We'll be producing another one of those uh, fresh revaluation to the end of September, which we'll announce in October. I mean, you're getting increasing touch points to get transparency on how the portfolio is performing and OCI is producing as live an update as, as you possibly can. And I would argue, you know, any fears around, you know, NAV decrease, you know, are way more than baked in. I mean, the idea that a NAV that's growing at 17% in the first half, you know, should be trading at a 37% discount to that is hard to justify. Indeed. And that obviously reflects, it's not your doing, obviously, the discount. It's not created by you. Uh, it's created by the market. And the fact that investors don't seem persuaded by these arguments we're hearing increasing, obviously, that how uh, relatively cheap or even absolutely cheap private equity investment trusts are. Looking at your chart, at one point, I think the discount did come into around 10% at one point at the sort of end of last year. But now it's come out a long way. I'm just looking at the AIC figures here. And now this has come a long way back down. And you said you're going to be doing a lot of things to try and uh, help narrow that discount, because obviously that's of concern to the shareholders. What are you doing in that respect? Yeah, happy to touch on that. I mean, the first thing I'd always say, and I think, Jonathan, you know how I feel on this particular topic, but one, the biggest driver of shareholder performance or share performance or shareholder returns is the NAV growth. So yes, there are discounts. Yes, they may be frustrating, but I think the market and media and even the analysts, I think, do themselves in the sector a disservice by focusing sometimes exclusively on the discounts which they're trading. If you look at the correlation between what is most likely to drive shareholder performance, it is the NAV growth itself, the thing that we have control over. What I do recognize is that clearly the inefficiency of the market does provide potentially really interesting entry valuations into these portfolios. And if you've got a view that, as we should, you know, we might start trading at a premium, then that is extra return that you would be particularly keen to cash in on. So 
going into that point. And sorry, the other thing that's so inefficient about the discounts and you talking about us narrowing to a 10% discount, we didn't actually narrow to a 10% discount. What actually happened is the NAV was like six months old. Eventually, you know, slowly it draws in. But the actual NAV, the NAV behind that was 20% ahead of that. And so sometimes when you compare one company to another, no one takes into consideration the age of the NAV you're comparing it to or, you know, the underlying growth of the companies. So what can we do to deal with that? I think one, you've got to increase the confidence in outstanding valuations. I mean, you've kind of referred to it now. Like, can I really trust the NAV? You know, clearly the market's volatile. It's in turmoil. Deals are being done at lower valuations. Well, look, if you can prove that your valuations are consistent, they are conservative in methodology, and that that's borne out by the price in which you sell those assets, which is exactly what we saw, you know, 30% of the growth was based upon us selling assets above the value they were holding at. You talk about the prevailing multiple of the deals being done in private equity in Europe falling, but actually we've just sold three to four assets year to date at an average multiple of 18 times, proving that if you've got high quality assets where people can have real certainty about the performance, you'll attract the appropriate valuations. So if we can get through this year of a market sell-off and demonstrate a NAV that has grown and is underpinned by deal activity, then I think you should really see, if not OCI, the listed P universe, start to re-rate again. And this will be a really important year for this universe because most people will be looking to that global financial crisis, will be looking to the trouble that a number of them got into and expecting history to repeat itself. If this higher quality set of listed P vehicles can prove this otherwise and prove to be robust, it will be a real breaking point for the valuations. In terms of what we specifically can do, we can report higher quality amounts of information, provide lots of transparency and do it as frequently as possible. We've got best in class for doing that now for our reporting accounts with the AIC for the last two years, the Alternative Investment Trust class. We report um, NAV you know, kind of quarterly, and this approach should have you know, a relatively immediate effect, I think, on, on the discount going forward. And then there's performance. You said it yourself. Like, you know, great, you've done 20% plus over the last five years. That's reasonably standout. The question is, can you do that in over periods of disruption? If we can do that and generate scale while we're doing it to, to attract more liquidity and hopefully help that re-rating over the next year or so, two or three years, then I think that's going to have a big impact. And then finally, we have a number of direct investments in the portfolio companies. They create confusion. There's concerns around conflicts of interest. We really do need to realize those. And that is the plan within the next kind of couple of years. And finally, share buybacks. If we have excess cash, the best thing we can do is return that to shareholders by buybacks. One, it demonstrates our confidence in the NAV and the prevailing valuation of the portfolio companies. And frankly, it is a you know incredibly earnings enhancing. I mean, you're you're generating 35, 40% IRR by buying the own shares, the things you know the most about. And I think a combination of those factors you know, should help see the discount close over the coming six months. I'm sure despite what you say, it'd be healthy for the private equity sector as a whole. I mean, you, you wouldn't complain if your shares were re-rated while some of the others didn't. We know some of the reasons why, or at least the reasons that are given for the fact that discounts have remained so wide, or in some cases uh, got even wider. And that's partly to do with attitudes towards the sector, partly uh, experienced during the global financial crisis, as you've already mentioned, partly concerns about debt and the cost of debt if we're facing rising interest rates. And of course, that old perennial concerns about fees and performance fees or, or the way that uh, private equity trusts are structured. It does 
effectively guarantee that when the trust is making good returns, the management company is going to make more money than the, than the shareholders. That may be a good bargain for them, but that's actually how it works. Are you encountering a lot of resistance from wealth managers and institutional investors to uh, the fee structure as you have it? Uh, and what differentiates you from the other trusts in the sector in that regard? I think the first thing to say is that if you are an investor in the Oakley Funds, any investor in the Oakley Funds, so any institution of whatever size or family office, just like OCI is, one of those investors, they all pay essentially the same fee. You know, that is a market-wide fee. And the reason that fee is acceptable is that net of that fee, we generate some of the highest returns, not just within private equity. Our fund three, for example, is the highest performing European buyout fund bar none. And so frankly, if you're delivering fantastic net returns, then your fees are justified. And we are fortunate enough to be able to say that to date we are. And those fees are broadly the 2% management fee and the 20% performance fee on realized returns um, over an 8% hurdle. So that is the fee. There is a small fee on top of that for the fact that OCI has costs. It needs reporting accountants, lawyers, a board. It's got to have you know external valuations communication professionals, <laughs> et cetera. And that is a relatively small kind of ongoing cost that's kind of like 0.4, 0.5% of, of, of NAV. So there's no double fees on fees here. It's not like a fund of funds. There is literally, it pays the same fees as any other institutional investor into the funds. Now, unfortunately, you know, the way this is articulated to, particularly to private investors, is very much, you know, certainly by the way of kids, or if you were to make an investment privately on a platform, is that it somehow suggests that you know you are literally it puts in the terms of here is your investment of that you're going to pay away this much you know kind of to OCI in fees the misnomer there is that you know it's the same with any investment you know you don't buy Vodafone and it says oh, you're paying this much away in operating costs but, you know there is operating costs there are fees it just happens in closed ended investment trusts they're represented in a very different way to any other investment class it creates an air of suspicion and concern where there should be none. And frankly, whilst these fees may sound high in comparison to public equity trading, it's not surprising. I mean, you are talking about you could manage a billion of assets under management in the public sector with a single individual, a couple of individuals if you wanted to. The platform that's required to invest in private equity, you know, we have to manage, you know, kind of our investment. We've got a 50 strong investment team. They work on deals before they do them for maybe up to four years before it happens. They construct everything about the company at the point in terms of the balance sheet, the debts, the equity structure, the incentive schemes. And then also when we own them, you know, there is that constant engagement of a relatively large team with us sitting on the board, working on the strategy all the way through the life of that investment. There is a lot of cost and an operations team that is the equivalent in size that is required to manage private equity. It is a kind of hands-on. And also, you know, the, the companies don't sit there in a pool with us looking to achieve them. We have to go out there and find them. It's an inefficient process in the same way that, you know, in the public equity, they're all there listed with all the information you want about them. 
Okay, so the fees are what they are. And of course, what you're saying is that if you're a private investor, you have to really look beneath the bonnet quite carefully to distinguish between a different private equity trust and then take a view about whether it's uh, justified or not. You've given a good sort of general argument for why the sector and for your trust should re-rate. But if we look out of the window at what's going on in the world, not only have we seen you know valuations come down because the market's been so weak, but in particular in Europe, we've got this threat from Russia weaponizing energy, and that's bound to lead to slowdown in in economic activity across Europe. So even if you're right about the general principle of the discount area, can you actually go on delivering good NAV returns uh, in this kind of environment where the European economy is really struggling in the face of uh, soaring energy bills, as we know? Look, Jonathan, I mean, we're not complacent. I mean, we completely agree with you. I mean, we generally are quite bearish, you know, here at Oakley. I have been for many years, and there's a lot of people forecasting Armageddon, and, and I suspect, you know, they may finally be right. And as you point out, you know, no one is impervious to those kind of headwinds. And, you know, without a doubt of, of all the ones I've been speaking about today with investors, the kind of rising inflation, the rapid cost of living for, for consumers is clearly going to have an impact. Why is it that we think we're going to be you know, kind of more resilient and most in, in the face of that? Look, I think it's three reasons. I can get more granular, but it's essentially, you know, there are a whole bunch of long-term counter-cyclical trends that we're investing behind. You know, whether that is, I talked about increasing global demand for high quality, you know, kind of education. I talked about the increase in regulation in certain sectors. I've talked about that shift of online to online for business and consumers. You know, trends that are just, they might be within a shrinking market, but the online solutions are clearly going to be still growing. And investing behind those has been the key to us continuing to grow, regardless of economic backdrop. When we make an investment, we assume that we have to generate returns in spite of the economic backdrop. The other key thing is our ability to impact and influence outcomes, regardless of that wider economy. But that's thanks to a value creation toolkit that includes the likes of the improvement in quality of earnings, You know, focusing them on recurring and subscription revenues. It's buy and build strategies where you can roll up fragmented markets in subscale single products, you know, low profitable businesses to create something of scale, put them all on similar platforms, give them all the same kind of infrastructure and backing to create, you know, something that's worth a lot more, you know, kind of once acquired. You know, kind of the list goes on, improving management, internationalization, digitalization, which we've done incredibly well. You know, these are ways to create value, reliably create value so far, for us at least, um, in spite of what's happening broadly. And then you touched on it. But I think it's important. If you're if you're rude about Oakley, you know, we're we're in the weeds doing the difficult stuff, kind of doing the hard work and ultimately preparing businesses for life with larger PE funds. And you know, you've seen that the majority of the buyers of assets have been the large sponsors who we've now got increasing relationships with, you know, the likes of CVC, EQT, KKR, you know, Silver Lake, the gorillas of, of global PE. And the fact that not only do they still sit there, regardless of the, of the drop-off in fundraising activity, they still sit there with a trillion of, uh, of dry powder, particularly concentrated around those larger global funds. And we are, our portfolio is very much a target from them. So we also have this valuation tailwind of the demand for our businesses. We've agreed to sell four of our companies so far this year, in spite of the backdrop 
at significant premiums to value, at significant premium to the average that that portfolio companies being sold at. And we have every belief that that will continue this year and next. So kind of in combination, those drivers, along with our you know, deal origination, should see Oakley or OCI, more importantly, kind of outperform this year and next. Indeed. And I think if I was a cynic, which heaven forbid, I'm not. I mean, it is extraordinary how there is a cycle in private equity justice in, uh, <laughs> in many things in the market. And it's sort of always seems about this time late in the cycle that people start talking about, oh, we must do something for shareholders, narrow the discounts and so on, and uh, start doing deals that, uh, you know, kind of validate their performance. But I think it's fair to say in your case, I have to give you credit for the fact that you're mostly selling to the others rather than buying from them at inflated valuations. So you're, you're getting the benefit of that because you mainly just recycle the money back into your own funds. I mean, that I think is a point that I think you could make. And I would certainly uh, endorse that without uh, becoming a spokesman for you, of course. <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> absolutely. I wouldn't want you coming across as on my side, Jonathan. Look, absolutely. I mean, sadly, PE funds have a limited life. We, we always talk about, you know, how we're great owners of businesses because we can take a long-term view. But actually, there's a big problem with PE funds. They have a limited life. You have to sell the assets. I know there's a lot talked about in kind of PE firms selling from the left hand to the right hand. We are selling to external parties. We're the first private equity buyers into these companies. We're growing the hopper of private equity. And to date, that doesn't have to be, we've been selling to either strategics or the big sponsors. You know, there is a third party involved in the transaction. We may look to make a follow-on investment in another fund, but it is a separate investment decision in a separate Oakley fund. And it will be based on either information advantage or a particular catalyst that we think a new investor can help us unlock. Indeed. Well, that's been very interesting, Stephen. I think the results, as I said, have been uh, look impressive. I mean, the only other point I think I should put to you at this point is that obviously you have a portfolio that's more concentrated than uh, a number of other private equity trusts by the nature of what you do. And of course, it's good to be able to report, you know, realizations. But you might think that basically the realizations are going to be on the best companies you've got and not on the worst ones you've got. And that therefore, there will be some holdings within the portfolio, which uh, may actually not only not produce a return, but might also be very problematic. And I think you've got a couple in your portfolio, the ones that are still directly held. And we've seen, you know, what happened with trusts like Chrysalis, where they've had, because they've again got a relatively concentrated portfolio, and some of their biggest holdings have... uh, you know, taken a real beating, such as Klarna and so on. So how do you answer that point? You say, well, look, overall, we're doing all these wonderful realizations and the NAV is fine, but there will still be some, I wouldn't call them dogs necessarily, but there'll be some less well-performing investments in your portfolio. Uh, and it may be that if we go into a bad recession, for example, they're going to get worse rather than better. What do you say to that? So I think the first point to make is let's compare apples to apples. I mean, we are talking about the companies we're talking about here within the Oakley funds are established, profitable, high-growing businesses. So it's easier to establish a valuation which we believe to be, you know, kind of conservative. And NAV is not growing thanks to uplifts in valuation through funding rounds, which it's very hard to kind of determine if it's the right valuation for those or not. Our valuations are based upon typically where we entered the investment in the first place, what we hope was a you know kind of advantageous multiple. That tends to be the point in which we we anchor our investments. And to date, we've proven that that is a conservative way to do it. Our average premium when we sell down NASA is is 52%. So we've consistently been above those kind of holding values. 
in businesses that is much easier to value than I would argue, you know, kind of big tech, non-profitable um, businesses. It's very hard to establish valuations with them. Selling down your prime assets and being left with the underperformers is absolutely a risk. I think the thing to kind of track, therefore, is the average age of your portfolio. If you want a litmus test, if you're selling down assets, but the average age of your portfolio is growing, then something suggests you're hanging on to certain companies for longer, and maybe that's you hanging on to your dogs. I mean, generally speaking, their average holding period is about three and a half years, and the average holding of the portfolio you know, sits around two. And it hasn't changed an awful lot, kind of implying that it's our mature assets that we sell, not the high-performing or underperforming. In fact, one of the things that we've tried to learn from historically is to avoid exactly what you've just described, is that you know, some of our best-performing assets, like we've touched on IU, we would like to retain as big of an exposure to for as long as possible to very much kind of counter that argument. Now, at some point in time, a fund's life will you know, force us to sell out of a fund but we'll find whatever ways possible to continue to be exposed to that. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.